There's a line in that song that is hard to sing and hard to pray. My stubborn will subdue. Now, if you don't know that you have a stubborn will, just ask somebody sitting close to you. We all have stubborn wills. And to ask God to subdue that is to ask God to break us of it. And to ask God to break us of it is to ask Him to do something fresh and new in our lives so that we can have an encounter with Him that is not just an event in a moment, but something that transforms and changes us to where we are not the same after He's done it. To be broken of those things that we want to hold on to and those things that we value and cherish that may not be in our best interest but we argue and debate with God about it. The passage we're going to look at tonight, I've only heard one man preach on this passage, and that was Vance Havner. I, I looked in several commentaries again this afternoon, and some great men of God like Alexander McLaren and others skipped over this in their commentaries on 1 Kings. But when I read this, I, I see a message to the church about revival and about God working in our lives. And I cannot look at this passage without seeing so many things that relate to us today. And so I want to invite you to turn to 1 Kings 14 if you're not already there. And I want to begin with verse 21 and read through verse 28. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Namah the Ammonitess. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and beneath every luxur luxuriant tree. Now that's a reference, obviously, to pagan worship that they had begun to model and embrace pagan worship. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place, and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Then it happened as often as the king entered the house of the Lord that the guards would carry them, that being the bronze shields, and would bring them back into the guard's room. I want you to go back and look at verse 27. 
Shishak has stolen the gold shields, and Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard. He had not committed the gold shields to the care of the commanders, but he committed bronze. The blessings and the power of the days of Solomon are now replaced with the apostasy of Rehoboam. I want you to go back to verse 21. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. He wrote the Proverbs. When you read Proverbs 1.1 through Proverbs 9.28, when the writer of Proverbs says, My son, he's speaking to Rehoboam. Solomon is saying to his son Rehoboam, These are the ways of wisdom. This is how you can honor God with your life. This is how you can serve God with your life. But here's the problem. Solomon taught his son the Proverbs, but he didn't live out his own teachings before his son. His talk and his walk did not match. And so when Rehoboam came to the throne, he embraced the ways of his father, not the words of his father. And I'm afraid what we have today is a commitment not to the words of our father, but to the ways of people who make us feel comfortable with less than God's best in our lives. And when I see this, I see a lot of similarities between Rehoboam and the 21st century. First of all, the church has largely lost her power and her influence. There's very little influence of the church in our culture. We have churches on every corner. There are 48 churches in our association. And Albany, Georgia is more lost today than it was 25 years ago. There's more crime, there's more problems, there are more issues than there were 25 years ago. The churches are present, but they're not preeminent. They're not powerful. They're not making a difference. And we're parading our programs and our bulletins and our stuff in front of people, but where's the power? Secondly, we have empty pews, empty altars, dry eyes, and no burden. Empty pews, empty altars, dry eyes, and no burden. Ron Dunn said one time that he thinks that preaching to most crowds, they give you an attitude of we accept that as information that has been received and we now move to be dismissed. No change, no burden. And if God's going to do something in our lives, if God's going to do something in our church, there's this onion that he's going to have to peel back one layer at a time until he can get to the very core and the very heart of who we are and all the facades and the fronts that we put up and all the games that we play so that he can get to the real us, so he can help us. You see, God wants to do a work, but as long as we have dry eyes and empty altars. God's not interested in blessing people who say, I'm not interested in what you have for me. 
Thirdly, we are prayerless, and thus we are powerless. The spiritual temperature of a church, the power of a church, is determined by the level of praying. And if we want God's power, then we have to be more committed to prayer than we have ever been. We are busy, but are we busy doing the right things? That's a good question for us to ask. That's a good thing for us to evaluate at the beginning of a school year. We're busy. We're going to be doing a lot of things. There's going to be a lot of demands on our time. But are we busy doing the right things? We're organized, but are we agonized? We're agonizing after God that we want Him to work in a powerful way in our lives. I get a brochure every week telling me how to grow the church. And we talk a lot about church growth, and we've got churches that run 3,000 and 5,000 and 10,000 and 15,000 and 20 and some 40,000 in this country. But the question is not church growth. The question is church health. Rabbits can breed. The question is not how many, but what kind. Are we the kind of people that God can use? Where is the evidence of changed lives? While churches have grown in number, basically all they've done is swap sheep from one congregation to another, but where are the changed lives of impacting the culture for Christ? Vance Havner said, we've got too many church members that are starched and ironed, but not washed. Starched and ironed, looked all pressed and ready to go but we've never been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Rehoboam was the grandson of David. He was a third generation. If you would allow me, since I am one, he was the king of the baby boomers. And under his watch, he forgot to honor his heritage. He forgot to honor the ways of the law of God. He forgot to honor the Word of God. He built fortified cities food storage bins. He built up the national defense, but he didn't seek God. He got trapped in self-sufficiency. And the parallel passage to this is found in 2 Chronicles 12, where it says, he forsook the law of the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles 12, 13, he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Remember, Rehoboam listened to ungodly counsel. And because he listened to ungodly counsel, he put the nation on a path of idolatry and set the nation up for judgment because he would not listen to wisdom. He would not listen to the word. He would not fall under its authority. He put the nation on a path of destruction and judgment. And there are seven specific sins that are mentioned here that the people were guilty of. And it happened under Rehoboam's watch. First of all, they did evil. They did evil. Second Chronicles 12, 2 says they were unfaithful to the, war, to the Lord. That word evil translates a root of a Hebrew word that means to break a trust. To break a trust. Now think about it. They did evil. They broke a trust. What did God entrust to them? God entrusted to them a law and a land. And it says they went and did the very things 
that the nations had done that they were told to drive out of the land. They became like the people that they were never supposed to become like. They did evil. Secondly, not only did they do evil, they provoked God to jealousy. Our God is a jealous God. He is, wants no rivals for his affection. He's not trying to be number one. He wants to be Lord. You see, if Jesus is number one in your life, there's somebody that's number two that's bucking for number one. He doesn't want to be number one. He wants to be Lord. Jesus didn't come to try to patch us up. He came to take over. And they provoked God to jealousy. And, and trust me, folks, just read your Bible. You don't want to provoke God. You're not going to win. Nobody does. Number three, they committed greater sins than their fathers. They committed greater sins than their fathers. You see, when a generation decides that they will not be committed to the things of their forefathers, then the generations that follow just go down a progressively dangerous, slippery slope. And they didn't do what they should have done. This is just like third generation, just like those who followed Joshua, and then there arose a generation that did not know Joshua, didn't remember Joshua, third generation, and they forsook the Lord and there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Then they went through the judges, and they would go through bondage, and God would deliver them, and they'd thank God for the deliverance, and they'd go right back into bondage. It seems that mankind has a propensity to learn nothing from the past. So they provoked God to anger. They committed greater sins. They built altars to pagan gods. God's people funded the building of pagan altars. Number five, they allowed homosexuality, male cult prostitutes. Number six, they were worldly. It says, according to the abomination of all nations. And then number seven, they didn't learn from their experiences. And so they were abandoned to Shishak. The fifth year of Rehoboam's reign, Shishak shows up. He's got 12,000 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and he takes all the treasures of the king's house and all the treasures of the house of God. He plunders the temple, and verse 26, he took the gold shields which Solomon had made, which symbolized the blessings of God. Let me tell you why verse 26 is important. This was the initial blow. This was the beginning of the end. The people didn't know it. They didn't believe it. They didn't receive it as that. But this was the initial blow for the downfall and ultimate dispersion of the Jews and the destruction of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom was already in trouble, but the southern kingdom was on a slower path. But this was the beginning of the end for them. Shishak stole the shields, and rather than repent over what he had done, Rehoboam made a king's edict, and he said, we'll just make some bronze shields. They won't be as expensive, not like my father Solomon made, but we'll make some bronze shields, and we'll just keep parading them out there and pretending that they're still, everything's still okay between us and God. You see, it doesn't take long 
The book of Acts, we see a church with power. By the time of the book of Revelation, which is only 60 years later, God says to five of the seven churches, repent or else. 60 years, one generation. God says, you better repent or else I'm going to remove the lampstand from among you. I'm going to remove myself from you. I'm going to take away my blessing and my power from you. One generation, everything changes. I mean, living in the shadow of people who had seen the risen Christ and yet forgotten. We say, oh, I mean, I had an experience and I'll never get over it. And we do. I remember sitting in Orlando the first time watching The Passion, unedited. And I remember how I felt when I saw that. That it was my sin that did that. And I thought walking out, I'll never get over what I felt tonight. But I did. Life got busy and it got hectic. And I got involved in secondary things. And before you know it, it's just a memory. And it's just an experience. But it didn't do effectual change on me. By the way, just as a side note, Mel Gibson's problem is not alcohol. And Mel Gibson's problem is not that he's anti-Semitic. Two of his main people that work for him are Jews. Mel Gibson's problem is he is a professed believer who has not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, if we're not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are one dumb move away from embarrassing every other believer we know. Let him that think he standeth take heed lest he fall. None of us are exempt from the pressures that come when we say we're a Christian. God forsook Rehoboam because Rehoboam forsook God. The splendor of the kingdom was now fading. And they were parading in pomp and circumstance, all the stuff, but the power was gone. What began in the spirit, they were now trying to perfect in the flesh. They were compromising. Ichabod, the glory has departed, was about to be written on the nation. Now think about this. Shishak came to town and he stole the gold shields. What it had taken the generation of David and the generation of Solomon to build Rehoboam lost in days. What it had taken decades to do was gone in a matter of days. That's how quickly Satan can come in and steal from us if we're not aware and if we're not on guard. It can happen overnight, and in times of decay and cover-up, which we will see toward the end of this message, God always raises up a standard. And when He raises up that standard, He raises it up to show us how pathetic we are compared to where we could be. He always has sent a prophet, a Luther, a Knox, a Wesley, a Moody, a Whitfield, a Spurgeon, a Finney, a Tozer, a Havner, to point out the problems and to call for repentance. And if I read my paper correctly and if I watch the news with any discernment and if I understand the times, this is no time for the church 
to be dozing off. This is no time for us to be at ease in Zion. This is no time for us to be parading bronze shields around and pretending that the glory of the gold of God is on us. This is no time for a veneer or a false pretense. Brass can shine, but it's not gold. Vance Havner said, we need a voice in the wilderness. We need a voice in the wilderness. A preacher who wears no tags or labels, who is not intimidated by the glare of brass, but who sees in it only man's substitute for God's gold. I need to be that voice. You need to be that voice. That you're not intimidated by what the world parades around as success. But you say, this is God's standard. And we won't settle for anything less. I am not going to be one that lives my life settling and pretending that average is excellent. I've said it to you before, and I will say it again. Somebody asked me years ago, will you ever be satisfied? And I said, no. As long as there's one member of this church that's not walking in fellowship with God, as long as there's one teenager that's living outside of the will of God, as long as there's one family member that's not committed to Christ, as long as there's one dad that will not be the spiritual leader in the home, as long as there's one family that will not be complete in Christ, I will not be satisfied. Because that is what God calls a church to be. Paul said to the Colossians that he wanted to present every man complete in Christ, not just the Sunday night crowd, but every man. And it should break our hearts, and it should tear in our souls that there are people who have walked in this church and have heard great men of God, like Bill Stafford, Layman Strauss, Ron Dunn, and walk out and do nothing about their faith. It should grieve us because it grieves God. And we must be serious about the things of God or we're going to lose these kids right here and these kids over here and those kids that are back there in the preschool area tonight. If we won't do it for any other motive, we ought to do it because we care about our children and our grandchildren. If there's no other reason for you to live for God, live for God to give something to those who come behind you so that you leave it a better place, not a lesser place. So I'm at my first point, but I'm further along in this message than you think I am, which will make you happy. The problem presented is, first of all, those brass shields were a poor substitute. They were a cover-up. Again, I say gold was a symbol of God's blessings. Bronze was a symbol of judgment. And every day they would parade and walk out those shields, which represented lost power and lost presence and lost purpose. You know, you can buy knockoffs at Walmart or at a flea market, 
But if you want the most precious of diamonds and the most precious of gold, you got to walk into a place like Tiffany's. And you can't sell Walmart jewelry and convince God that it's Tiffany's. They're just not the same. You see, we can say we believe the Bible and not be right with God. We can say we know that God works in a praying church and not be praying. We can say we know that there's a need for power, but still parade our flesh around. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And it's sad to me that Rehoboam lost the kingdom and Shishak stole the gold shields, but it is sadder to me when a church fails to confess its failure to be what God wants it to be. When we refuse to live up to all the blessings that we've had, now I want to take you just quickly, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 12. Don't even turn there. I'm just going to give you a quick outline because this is what happens to us when we get busy about the wrong things. And we come to church and we go through our motions, but we don't live the lives that God's called us to live. First of all, in Hebrews 12, we drift from the Word. We begin to drift from the Word. We just, Bible study doesn't become important. Our quiet time doesn't become important. We, we drift away from what God says. And, and then we start even asking questions like Satan asked in the Garden of Eden. Has God said did God really mean that when he said it? Surely that doesn't apply to us in 2006. In Hebrews chapter 4, we doubt God's word because when you drift from God's word, you begin to doubt God's word. You doubt what he says, and then in Hebrews 12, we are dull to the word. And so we hear it, but like water on a duck's back, it just kind of rolls off of us. I talked to a pastor today. He called my house this afternoon. He's a great guy, loves God. And we were talking about the Refresh Conference. He said, you know, he said, I need to come down for a couple of days. I just need to hear from God. He's going to drive five hours because he needs to hear from God. And we'll have members of this church that won't drive five minutes to come hear from God because they don't care about what God has to say to us. And folks, by the way, if God moves in this church one night or one day, whether it's now, tonight, or refresh, or five years from now, you don't get it by watching a DVD of it. You got to be there. You know, when Jesus shows up, he doesn't put it on pause until we decide to get our act together. He just shows up. And he sovereignly chooses when he does that. We sing an old song sometimes, I'd rather have Jesus. But the truth of the matter is there are a lot of Christians that would rather have the appearance of having Jesus than having Jesus. They're a poor substitute. They're a poor cover-up. Havner said, most church members live so far below the standard, you'd have to backslide to be in fellowship. We are so subnormal that if we became normal, people would think we were abnormal. They're a poor substitute. They're a poor cover-up. Now, what's a bronze shield? It's religion without relationship. It's practice without power. It's applauding second-class commitment to a first-class cause. All that glitters is not gold, and all that glitters is not God. 
I'll never forget being in a meeting where I was preaching with Manly Beasley, one of the only time I ever got to do it. And we were in a meeting in Oklahoma, and something happened in the service, and I mean, it was just, you just knew at the moment that God was not in that at all. And Manley never got up and rebuked anybody. He never said anything. He just got up and his frail condition got out of a wheelchair and leaned over the pulpit and put his hands down like this. And he, this is what he said. Not everything that happens in the house of God is of God. And I will have you know that that's all he said. But the eight people who were involved in what happened without any other prompting that night came down to the invitation and confessed that they knew that what they did was not of God. Now that's when the Holy Spirit has control. When you don't have to have a preacher point it out, the Holy Spirit points it out and you do something about it. Even pagans know the difference between gold and bronze. And I'm afraid that our prayer lives are bronze. I'm afraid that our Bible reading is bronze, that we read it, but we don't practice it. That our commitments are bronze. They're better than other people. I mean, after all, we are here on Sunday night. All those other heathens, they're not coming back on Sunday night, but we're here. But I don't compare myself to the people that come on Sunday morning. I have to compare myself to Jesus Christ. Am I living up to his standard? Not my standard, his standard for how I'm supposed to live. What happens is you begin to imitate glory with trinkets. There's an interesting verse in Exodus. Don't turn there. I just want to read it to you. Exodus 32, 25. This is when they uh, built the golden calf and Aaron came and made excuses and said, I don't know what happened. They gave me all this stuff. I threw it into this cauldron and out popped a calf. And boy, that's about the sorriest excuse I've ever heard anybody make in my life. You know, I had nothing to do with this. It just kind of all just kind of happened right there in front of me. I just did what the people wanted me to do. That's why God chose Moses and not Aaron. Um, and this is what Moses said. When Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. I have written in the notes of my Bible that the lost people are the first to know when the church is not the real deal. We are a derision among our enemies when we worship at false altars and give half-hearted commitment. There's a power lost. Even a politically correct historian can't make the reign of Rehoboam look like the reign of David. First of all, the pulpit lacks power. Now, I'm, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I think y'all know that. But you know, there used to be a day when if a man was called into ministry, it was hell hot, heaven sure, judgment coming, sin black, blood of Jesus. And I mean, it, you know, you just, you just knew where the guy stood. Sometimes today, I wonder where, where some of these guys are standing. I think they're standing in the middle of the stream hoping that they're not going to get wet. It's like the guy in the Civil War. He wore a, a Union top and he wore Confederate pants because he couldn't decide which side he was on, and both sides shot him. <laughs> a 
But folks, I want to tell you, whether you're here or somewhere else, don't settle for a preacher that doesn't speak the truth and tickles ears and makes you feel good because he gives you 14 steps to being a nice person, but he never tells you how to be a godly person. You know, I don't need a preacher to swing out over the crowd on a rope to impress me. I don't need a preacher holding a blue umbrella over his head while he's preaching. I get lost in the gimmicks and I forget what he's saying because I look and say, that's got to be the stupidest man I've ever seen in my life to stand and preach with a blue umbrella over his head. As a, what's this, a sideshow? Is this Barnum and Bailey? When do the elephants come in? I want to know what God says. And you should want to know what God says. Not somebody trying to be cute. Not somebody trying to be hip. By the way, the, you know, we, we have discussions about this sometimes. The, the, the guys are saying, we're the leaders, we're the young leaders in the convention. I'm about ready to write them a letter and say, you guys are 40, you're the old leaders, step aside. You know, you've been trying to be hip since you were in your 20s, now you're my, almost my age. So let the young leaders have a voice. Some of the young leaders are stronger than some of the guys that are right in the generation below me. I mean, you can't hear Louis Giglio and wonder, wonder what he meant by that. Because he's straight on. Some of them, you wonder if they've ever read their Bible. The pulpit has lost its power. You know, if you want people to bleed, you got to hemorrhage. And I'm afraid that we got too many preachers that are just trying to keep their jobs. I said to a pastor one time who got fired for preaching the Word, I said, you ought to put that on your resume. Fired for preaching the Word of God by a carnal, ungodly church. Wear it as a badge of honor. Make you a t-shirt. Because I'm tired of sissies in the pulpit that aren't men enough to stand up and have guts enough to stand for what they believe and let the chips fall where they may. I had a friend of mine who went to Roy Fish one time as a professor at Southwestern, and he said, I can't find a place to preach. And Roy said, there's a corner down here in Fort Worth. He said, stand there with your Bible and read the Word of God out loud. He said, there'll be a crowd that'll gather to hear you because they think you're crazy. He said, you can always find a place to preach. Start a church and go preach to a bunch of lost people, get them saved. You can always find a place. Church has lost its power. The home has lost its power. The church has lost its power. Church has watered down membership. Now, let's face it. There's a lot of form of godliness without the power. If I read my Bible correctly, which I think I do, and if I read the stories of great revivals, and I've read hundreds of stories of revival, I've got probably 150 to 200 books in my library on revival, sermons on revival, books on the history of revival. I've got, probably got 12 on the history of the Welsh revival. Uh, in my library, what happened in the early 1900s in Wales. And when I read that, no matter how good I think I'm doing, I'm not there. And no matter how good we think we're doing, 
we're not there. The showers of blessings are not falling. The power of God is not so thick you can cut it with a knife. The presence of God is not so real that a person could walk in here and couldn't even get inside the door without realizing that they needed to get right with God. I don't want to bore you with an old story, but I remember in those prayer meetings when I was in high school, and I remember a group of young people praying, which we had to get the deacons to allow us to use the church, which is another reason why that church is dead. But I remember a group of young people at the front praying. And I remember that in those days, for about a year period of time, that people would be driving down Market Street in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And they'd be going by and they'd see cars. And that by their own admission, by their own testimonies, they would stop and come in and not even know why they stopped and not even know why they came in. And I can still remember that aisle on this side when a young girl named Melaine, who was a 10th grade cheerleader at the time at Pascagoula High School, walked in the back door. She didn't get any further than the second pew. And she fell on her knees and started screaming out, somebody please tell me how to be saved. Not one person had talked to her. Now, folks, that's the presence of God. And if it's not happening... I'm not talking about orchestrating something up. If it's not happening, we ought to ask ourselves why. And we ought to beg God to let it happen. We ought to plead before God to let that kind of movement of God happen in this place. But we've lost our power. And the problem's not God. The problem is we're content. Last thing. There's a possibility of restoration. Second Chronicles 12, 5. Then Shemaiah. Now, that's, Shemaiah is not a politically correct prophet. Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you to Shishak. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. That little phrase, the Lord is righteous, oftentimes means in the Hebrew a confession of sin. When I say the Lord is righteous, it means I'm acknowledging that I'm not and that He is. Verse 7, he says, And when the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them, but will grant them some measure of deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. But they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. That some measure of deliverance in Second Chronicles 12 means a remnant that some will survive when the judgment comes. And he says, so that they can learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. Now listen. You think serving God's hard? Ask somebody that spent their life serving the devil. 
Think serving God's hard? Try serving Shishak. Remember the prodigal son? Had it made. Lived in the father's house. Was blessed by God. Decided he could do better on his own. Went out. And he made a wonderful decision. Spent all his money. Ended up in a pig pen. Slopping hogs. And said, it's better to be a slave in my father's house than to live like this. You see, if we would humble ourselves, we would spare ourselves humiliation. That God might grant us some measure of deliverance. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe with all my heart that Shishak is coming to town. And if we're not humble before God before he gets here, we will be humbled after he leaves. I think it would be better for us to humble ourselves now than out of shame over what we've lost that we would come to God and say, I'm sorry. Better to say, I'm wrong now than to say, I'm sorry when the blessings of God are gone and the judgment comes. Would you pray with me, please? We don't need to pretend. We don't need to play games.